Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you, and so excited for you to join us on today's show. I'm a little froggy today, but feeling great. I am so excited for you. I am going to introduce you to a friend of mine for the past 10 years, the great Allison Levine. And as we've shared here at the Brian Buffini Show, we want to talk about the mindsets, motivations, and methodologies of success. And when we bring a guest on, it has to be someone who's been there and done that. Where I'm not interested in someone who was on The Apprentice on Tuesday, brought their book out on Friday, and then that's what they did. When I ask people, what did you do? I wrote a book. Well, great. People that I want to emulate that I want to learn from are people who've lived a path that we can all learn from. And this lady, this woman is a champion. She is a world-class mountaineer, a polar explorer who served as the team captain of the first Americans Women Expedition to Mount Everest, boys and girls. That's kind of a big hill, if you know what I mean. (laughs) She has ascended the highest peaks on every continent and has skied to both the North and South Poles. I'm a big Shackleton fan, so this is impressive stuff here. So that achievement is called the Adventure Grand Slam, and less than 40 people in the world have achieved it. Talk about been there, done that. Allison was actually the deputy finance director for the governator, Arnold Schwarzenegger, in 2003. And I know there's a whole story on how that happened. (laughs) Spent four years as the adjunct professor at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. And we were just talking about how my wife Beverly coached there and what an amazing deal that is. She's the founder of the Climb High Foundation, author of the New York Times bestseller on leadership on the edge. A fabulous, fabulous leadership book. She has this new documentary called The Glass Ceiling, which is always part of your talk, and I just love that, basically featuring the first Nepali women to climb Mount Everest. The women were forbidden to climb. The Sherpas could only be men, and this changed the whole world. Allison was very involved in this. This glass ceiling, it's kind of like the Rosa Parks of Nepal, an incredible story, and I'm glad they finally made it into a documentary. Yeah, working on that in process. Yep, great. And I know you do a lot of work with Coach K. Mike Krzyzewski out at Duke, and you've done a lot of work with them and learned a lot from him. So we cut it off here because I didn't want the whole podcast to be your resume. <laughs> but you are, how tall are you? 5'4". Five 5'4", four. Five four, diminutive, a good day. petite lady that most people, when they meet you in an airport, wouldn't go, that's the gal that climbed Mount Everest. Right. That's the gal who's been all over the world. You know, you just have this amazing story. You've lived this incredible life. You're this fabulous speaker and we've enjoyed having you at our events so many times so for the folks who don't know you today fill us in a little bit take us back to the little girl growing up in phoenix arizona who took the the world by storm (laughs) well as you mentioned i did grow up in phoenix arizona so desert flat no (laughs) mountains yeah uh but when i was younger i for whatever reason i was always very intrigued by the stories of the early arctic and antarctic explorers so i'd read these books and i'd watch documentary films and just found this all so fascinating but I was born with a hole in my heart Mm. that got bigger as I got older so I had some health issues and some challenges growing up I had one cardiac procedure when I was 17 Mm. another one when I was 30 and the first one was not so successful the second one was Mm. and after that I had a clean bill of health I was healthy I could exercise and do things that anybody else could do for the most part and 
at that point, a light bulb went on in my head and I thought, okay, if I want to know what it's like to be Reinhold Messner and drag a 150-pound sled across 600 miles of Antarctic ice, then I should go do it instead of just reading about it. If I want to know what it's like to be these explorers that are going to all these big mountain ranges, then I should go to big mountain ranges instead of watching documentary films about them. And I thought, well, if these other guys are going out and doing this stuff, then why can't I do it too? So that's kind of how I went from just growing up in Arizona to doing the things that I do now. So in between those surgeries, did you start, when did you really get going at the whole expedition side of your life? I climbed my first mountain when I was 32 years old. No, you did not. I did. I did. I was starting graduate school and I quit my job two months before I started grad school because I wanted to go travel. And I went to Tanzania by myself I threw everything I needed in a backpack. I went to Kilimanjaro. I hired a local guide at the base of the mountain for 300 bucks, and I climbed Kilimanjaro, which is just a hike. It's nothing technical, but it you do get a feel for altitude because it's okay, over 19,000 It's feet, just a so. hike. How big of a hike is it? How long did <laughs> so that take? It, took, it was a hike for me to get from my office to the podcast studio. It about 100 yards. <laughs> well, there's a little bit of an incline coming into the room, <laughs> so I can true. understand that. <laughs> Kilimanjaro is a little over 19,000 feet, but the good thing is is that it's not a technical peak, so there's no crevasse dangers or glaciers or anything like that. So you can just hike it. It's just a really long hike. If you have stamina and some determination, uh, you can get up that mountain. So it took me How long five days. Five days. Five with, days. With a guide. Yes, and it was an important mountain for me because it's where I learned that I had that voice in my head that told me that I could keep going even when I felt like I wanted to turn around and quit. Mm. And you didn't find that till you were 32. I didn't. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> inspiring really. stuff because so many people are like, oh, yeah, she had this vision as a little girl. Isn't she, she so lucky? She always she knew what she wanted to do. She trained at the Olympic Training Center from the time she was four <laughs> years old. And no, I mean, no one in my family did anything like this. But, you know, when you see someone doing something that you think is interesting or you think might be challenging to try, go try it. And you could see yourself doing go it. Go try it. So then tell me what happened after Kilimanjaro. So after Kilimanjaro, I started graduate school at Duke. I went to business school and I thought, well, now I've got to focus on, you know, paying off all these loans I just took out for this graduate school program. (laughs) But the experience on Kilimanjaro just increased my level of passion for the mountains. So Mm. every time I had a break from grad school, so we were on six-week terms, every time I had a break, I used my frequent flyer miles. And again, threw everything I needed in a backpack because I didn't have any money. I was Mm. living off of student loans. But I figured I could get by on everything I had in a backpack. Warm clothes, a sleeping bag, a camping stove, you know, to cook some food, a tent. And every break I had from grad school, I used my frequent flyer miles. I went to a different mountain. Now, by this um, stage, are you starting to connect? Are you reading books on it? Are you reaching out to people? Are there relationships forming around it? So at this point, I was basically just doing my own research, showing up on my own, but connecting with people there. So Mm. every time I would get to the base of whatever mountain, I would make it a point to talk to everybody else who was there because I knew these people were probably much more experienced, Mm -hmm. much better skilled than I was, and I wanted to learn from them. I mean, the best thing you can do to increase your skills is to surround yourself with people who are better than you are, Mm -hmm. right? Because if you're with people at your same level or people who aren't at your level, you're probably not going to get better. So even though it was a little bit intimidating to try to follow these climbers up a mountain who 
were much more experienced and much stronger and much more skilled, that's what I did because I wanted to observe and learn and literally follow in their footsteps so that I could get better. Awesome. So graduate school continues on. You keep knocking out this mountain, that mountain, and you're getting more confidence. Right. Where does it go from there? So I finished up at grad school and I took a job with Goldman Sachs right out of grad Mm -hmm. school. And it was challenging for me to go there because I was a liberal arts major from the University of Arizona, you know, a big state school. And most people that I worked with had Ivy League educations Mm -hmm. and had come from the world of finance. And What city were you in at this stage? So I went to New York for training for nine months and then got transferred out to San Francisco. Mm Mm-hmm. Because this was, you know, 99, 2000, right? Oh, wow. So I did an internship there in 99, graduated in 2000. So the tech world and the telecom world, everything was big. Everything was booming. Everything was going on in Silicon Valley. Right. So that's where everybody wanted to be. So I thought, oh, I want to go out there too, <laughs> right? So by the time I started in the full-time job, I climbed the highest peak on six continents. Wow. And figured I needed to put my climbing career on hold because I wanted to really throw myself into this job. I felt very lucky to get a job offer from Goldman. And it's just who I am. When I show up, I give everything. I wanted to be, you know, the new employee that everybody could count on, that everybody Mm. could rely on. And so I thought I need to put my climbing career on hold. But then I got the invitation to serve as the team captain for the first American women's Everest expedition. And I thought, oh, what do I do? I have this new job. I can't ask for time off, but this is the offer of a lifetime. And I knew if I didn't step up to the plate to be the team captain, then somebody else was going to do it. Somebody else was going to be living my dream adventure. So I ended up asking my manager for a two-month unpaid How long in the job were you? I was a couple of months into the job. (laughs) But luckily, so by then, when I asked for the time off, it was right after September 11th. Oh, wow. Right? So the markets had tanked. All the financial services companies, well, lots of companies, were laying people off. So I'm sure Goldman probably thought, Two months unpaid? Sure thing. Take six months. Take half the department with you. And it's okay if a bunch of them don't come back. <laughs> so the, the timing was perfect oh, to get wow. me off the books for a couple of months. That's so I great. think that, you know, they say timing is everything. Yeah. And it worked in my favor at that point. So so talk to me about Mount Everest, right? I am a student of this stuff, but I've really never had much of an interest. I've told on previous podcast, my mountain climbing stories and how I uh, I had to crevasse one time and that was enough for me. I, yeah, um, it's all yes, it takes. Got me closer to God than I ever wanted to be. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so Mount Everest is known as the killer mountain. Yes. More people have died attempting that. People don't even realize how many people die every single year attempting to climb Mount Everest. It's unpredictable. The weather is nasty. It changes. And it's a right. brutal climb. And world-class mountaineers die there every single year. Absolutely. So now you got how many uh, women are going to go do this? So there's five of us, and we're the first American Women's Everest Expedition. So, you know, no pressure, just 450 media outlets following your climb because we're the first team. You know, CNN's doing live updates from the mountain. So you feel a lot of pressure. You want to obviously summit the mountain and send this message about what a team of women can do, and they lock arms and work together. Mm -hmm. But... Unfortunately, we missed the summit 
by just a couple hundred feet uh, due to bad weather. And it's, you know, there's a lot of challenges involved in that climb. And one of the most important lessons that I learned on that expedition, which is, I think, a great lesson for mountaineering, a great lesson for business, and a great lesson just for life in general, is that fear is okay. Like, fear is okay. It's just a normal human emotion. Like, I was scared on the trip dozens of times. But complacency is what will kill you, Mm. right? Again, fear is just a normal human emotion. Don't ever beat yourself up for feeling scared or intimidated. Fear is only dangerous when it paralyzes you. But complacency will absolutely do you in. In any environment that's constantly shifting and changing where you don't have control over the elements. And Mm -hmm. it's very infrequent that we do have control over the elements around us. So that trip for me was where I learned that lesson about fears find complacency will absolutely How did that manifest itself? What was the complacency? Well, I first really learned that lesson in this area of the mountain called the Kumbu Icefall. The Kumbu Icefall is where many of the accidents occur on the mountain. And the reason the icefall is so dangerous is that it's made up of 2,000 vertical feet of these big, huge moving ice chunks. And if you can picture these ice chunks, they're the size of apartment buildings, you know, small buildings. And and what happens is as the sun comes up and everything starts to melt, these big, huge ice chunks, they start to shift around. So you are in constant danger of being crushed. So that's the area where you are looking around you all the time and fear is what kept me awake alert on my toes and aware of everything going on around me so i used to feel disappointed in myself when i was scared Mm. and then i realized that fear is actually quite a useful tool and you can use fear to your advantage to propel you forward Mm -hmm. where do you feel the complacency comes in well complacency can't come in so that's the thing is that if you are complacent in that ice fall if you stand around and you're not moving forward there's a good chance that you could get crushed by one of these tumbling blocks of ice so that's where you learn to just keep going and also yeah and the kumbu ice fall you don't just go through it one time we went through it eight times because when you climb Everest, you actually climb up the mountain, and then you have to come back down lower again. Up I want you to lower. talk about this, because I love your talk. I love how you inspire audiences. But this is my favorite part of your talk. When you talk about having to go up and having to come down, right. that the direction and the progress are not the same thing. I just think that is such a profound message. Talk to the folks a little bit today about going up and coming back down and how to make progress in the mountain. That is probably the anecdote from my speech and from my book that I get the most comments about Mm -hmm. where people say, I had no idea, and that really stuck with me. So the process of climbing Mount Everest is not at all straightforward. You don't just get to base camp and climb to camp one and climb to camp two Mm -hmm. and on up from there. It's going to take you 10 days of hiking just to get to base camp. Mm. Once you get to base camp, you have to spend a few days and nights there to get used to the altitude because it's over 17,000 feet. So Mm. once you've been there for a few days, then you pack up all your stuff, your gear, your sleeping bag, your supplies, and you move up the mountain to camp one. That's your first camp you're going to set up. After you spend the night up there at camp one... You actually don't go up higher to camp two. You come back down to base camp again, and you Mm. spend a few nights at base camp again. And then you climb to camp one again. And that's to avoid altitude sickness, get blood thins out. Yeah, you climb to camp one again, climb up to camp two. And after you spend the night up camp two, you come back down to base camp again. And then you climb up, do the same thing, camp one, camp two, up to camp three. You're at 24,000 feet on this steep, icy face, and you come 
all the way back down to base camp again. And as you wow. mentioned, it is exactly for that purpose, acclimatization, because you have to let your body get used to the altitude very slowly. So if someone were to magically drop you off on the summit of Mount Everest, you know, by a plane or a helicopter or something like that, you'd be dead in a matter of minutes from the altitude. So you have to keep coming back down in between these interim camps so you can eat, sleep, hydrate, and regain some strength. Mm. So not only is it very physically challenging to be going up and down and up higher and back down, but psychologically it's quite frustrating as well because you know you're trying to get to 29,035 feet, but you keep climbing backwards down mm. to base camp. And as you mentioned, you know, Progress doesn't always happen in one particular direction. Sometimes mm. you are going to have to go backwards for a bit mm. in order to get to where you want to be. So don't look at that backtracking as losing ground in any way. Look at it as an opportunity to regroup, regain some strength, mm. so you're better out of the gates the next time around. What I always tell people is that backing up is not the same as backing down. Mm. And that is one of my best lines, you guys. So if you're going to write down anything from this podcast, (laughs) that's it. Backing up is not the same as backing down. Sometimes you're going to have to go backwards before you can go forwards. In the world we live in today, the way the movies tell the stories, the perception is quick, easy, three payments in 1995. (laughs) You know, but I've never found life to be that. I've never found success to be that. It's always a series of two steps up, sometimes three back, sometimes four back, sometimes one up. And this is such a great analogy. And I think that's why so many people resonate with your message, because it fills people full of hope. Right. You know, because here you are, this brave explorer that most of us are too petrified. You have a medical condition. Was it Raynaud's disease? Yes. That basically is a condition that when you're in the cold, you're more susceptible to frostbite. Is that yeah, right? So in addition to being born with um, actually two holes in my heart, I was born with this condition called Raynaud's disease, which is a neurological disease that causes the nerves to clamp down on the arteries that feed my fingers and toes, which leave me at extreme risk for frostbite. And it's interesting because for years, doctors told me I should avoid cold environments. Mm-hmm. But what I figured out is that this problem could be solved with chemical hand warmers, right? When I want to go to ski to the North Pole or the South Pole or climb a big mountain, it's those $2 chemical hand warmers. It was interesting to me to figure out that sometimes what you think is a big problem Mm. has a $2 answer. Wow. I love that. Hand warmers. That's all I needed to do. And sometimes someone else's very direct opinion is just that. And it wasn't the case. It wasn't exactly true. There was another solution. And there might be people listening to this podcast who've had a bad diagnosis or had a bad boss or had a bad run or had some tough times at home or in a relationship. And it's just keep chucking away, you know, keep your eye on the prize. Keep going for it. One step up, sometimes two step back. Keep asking questions. Backing up is not backing down. And I love that. That should be a T-shirt. Same as backing down. Okay, so talk to me then. First time up Mount Everest. Talk Uh, to me about getting within a couple hundred feet of your dream. So... We were two months on the mountain. Two months. And we got to within just a few hundred feet of the summit, and we had to turn back in a storm. And it was a crusher because not only, you know, look, the time, the effort, all the effort that went into fundraising to get the team sponsored. You know, Ford Motor Company sponsored our climb, and we felt like we really wanted to accomplish this big achievement, not just for ourselves and for people in America as the first American Women's Everest Expedition, but for our sponsor. And then we didn't make it. 
And as I mentioned, we had 450 media outlets following our clients. CNN's doing live updates on the mountain, and we miss it. And that is so crushing because you come back from Everest and you're already beating yourself up because you didn't make it. But then you've got to do the post-expedition media tour. What about having to climb down that bloody mountain, (laughs) which is a life and death thing itself, right? Well, yeah. And what people forget is the summit is the halfway point. The summit is never the goal. The summit's halfway. You've got to get yourself back down. So Mm -hmm. when you see storm clouds coming in, you can't look up at the sky and wonder, do we have enough time to make it to the top? You have to ask yourself, do we have enough time to make it to the top and back down? Right. So, so how long um, did it take to come back down after? It, coming back down, it just takes a couple of days yeah. because you're already so yeah. well acclimatized and you're losing elevation. So you feel stronger as you get lower on the mountain. But you're, you're beat up. You, you feel deflated. Oh. You know there's 450 media outlets waiting. Oh, you gals couldn't get it done. Right. You go back to the Today Show for a second time <sighs> and you walk in and Ann Curry's like... Welcome back. Oh, oh you know, oh, missing the top by a couple hundred feet. How does that make you feel? Like a loser, Ann Curry. <laughs> <laughs> How do you think it makes me feel? Wow. You know, so you come back to that all the time, and that's hard. I got to yeah. say, it's really hard. It's a big public failure. Yeah. A public failure. Right. This isn't like, I didn't hit my numbers, and uh, I'm the only one who doesn't know it. And nobody knows, right? And you know what? Yeah, I got next quarter. Right, So it is hard to have a big public failure. And you go from being the celebrated athlete prior to the climb to becoming the butt of Jay Leno's opening monologue joke. And yes, that really happened. So it is hard. And I think because that failure hit me so hard, it took me eight years before I got up enough courage to go back again. And that is my one regret, that it took me so long because Mm -hmm. I should have just you know, beaten back that failure and said, yeah. screw that failure. Like, I want to go back next year and try it again. But you had but it, things to learn. It wasn't like you were sitting at home doing crocheting all the time. Right. You were doing awesome stuff and you were inspiring people and helping people. And I learned. I waited till I felt like I was really ready to go back and give it another try. And I yeah. went back eight years later in 2010 and actually did make it to the summit on my second try. Yeah. Ho-hum. Let's just throw that out there. Well, Okay. Amazing. Thanks. Amazing. And so... They say uh, Edmund Hillary, when he first missed Mount Everest, and he came back and they had the parade in London for him, and yeah. he's there, and they bring him to the House of Commons, and he has a slideshow, right? Because that's how explorers funded their trips back then. I believe the speech was, he stood there, he rolled out a picture of the mountain and said, there you are, mountain, but you're as big as you're ever going to be, and the next time you see me, I'll have grown. Oh, I love that! I've not heard that one. I That's what they pay that. me the Bitcoin for right there, you know, Mr. Quote. But, right. you know, think about it. The eight years from the time when you missed Everest, when the time you came back, and, and that's when I got to know you, and I got to have you as at our event when you missed, and you were speaking <laughs> yeah. about missing the mountain, yeah. and then a few years later have you make the mountain. Yeah. But I could see the change in you from the first time till the second time. Oh, interesting. And that's the Edmund Hillary. You know, you're as big as you're going to get mountain, but I'm going to keep growing. Right. Well, the interesting thing, too, is everybody thought that standing on top of Mount Everest was going to be this huge, impactful point of my life. And don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. I was very humbled and felt very lucky to have made it to the summit. But what I learned from standing on that summit is that standing on the top of a mountain is not 
what's important. What's important are the lessons you learn along the way mm. when you're fighting like hell to get up there, mm-hmm. right? And what you're going to do with that information to be mm-hmm. better going forward. I mean, look, you mentioned Stradman Hillary. Everybody knows that guy's name, right? Stradman right. Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, first guys to ever summit the mountain. But there were dozens of climbers who tried and failed before those two made it up. Mm-hmm. Those two had the benefit of the 411, right? All the information from mm-hmm. those previous climbers. And granted, nobody knows their names, but I consider those efforts and their failure to reach the top as a very instrumental part of Sir Edmund Hillary's success. So yeah. every time you try something really hard and you fail, just look at that as a learning opportunity and you never know who's going to follow in your footsteps who you may have inspired by that effort. You know, you bring me to the natural conclusion which is what did you learn between the first attempt and the second? What I really learned was that you do not have to be the best, fastest, most skilled climber to get to the top of a mountain. You just have to be absolutely relentless. Mm about putting one foot in front of the other. Mm. That's really all it takes. Mm. Just be relentless. Mm. Well, I love that. I live that. I believe, uh, you know, when the recession hit the market space we were in, there were 27 competitors in the coaching and training side of our industries that we served. And at the end of the recession, there was one other competitor left. And at the end of the day, it was just, we just had a mindset that no matter what, I mean, I never even considered going out of business, never even considered not being around, never considered... And just you set your mind to that and you be relentless and you figure it out. Right. I think so much of success is keep showing up, keep fighting <sighs> through. Huge. Right? And Huge part of it. So many people just, everyone's got an excuse and everyone's got a reason why. But at the end of the day, you put yourself in that environment. You intentionally put yourself in those environments right. and test yourself. But out the other side has come some remarkable stuff. I have a few other questions I want to kind of dive into here. Tell me a little bit about the glass ceiling. I love that. I love that on the journey, yeah. you made well, a difference in other people's lives. this is actually something that's fairly new. So yeah. uh, as you know from when I spoke at your conference, I did some work with women in Uganda, the very first women to ever climb Uganda's highest peak. Well, now I'm working on this documentary about the first Nepali woman to climb Everest. She was the first Sherpa woman. Her name was Pasang Lamu Sherpa. She was dirt poor, had no education, couldn't read, couldn't write, but wanted to climb Mount Everest. She saw these men doing it and said, why not me? Well, they didn't allow Sherpa women to climb Mount Everest, which was interesting because the Nepali government allowed foreign women to come climb Mount Mm. Everest. So it was okay for all these other women, but not Sherpas because they were very low on the caste system, Mm. right? And there was still racism against Sherpas. And this woman with no education literally fought her country's government fought the government of Nepal for permission for Sherpa women to climb. And she tried three times unsuccessfully to make it to the summit. One time made it as far as 26,000 feet. So just a few thousand feet below the summit and was told she wasn't allowed to go to the summit because she was a Sherpa woman and they didn't want Sherpa women touching the summit. And she finally made it to the summit in 1993 but she died on the descent. Oh, Lord. I think that her ambition and her desire to reach the top just became something you know bigger than herself because she felt like she was climbing for all the people of Nepal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was during the people's movement of Nepal and there were all these uprisings and there was this very strong sense of nationalism. Mm. So she really wanted to you know 
get this recognition for Nepali women, and she used everything she had in her to get to the summit. Did she die of natural causes on the mountain? She died of exposure on the way down. She just completely ran out of energy. And there's a little bit of a mystery, actually, about what happened when she died, because Mm. she died with another Sherpa who was with her. Some say he stayed to help her. Some say that he was struggling and she stayed to help him. They never found his body. They did find hers. It was the first time that a body had ever been brought down from high up on the mountain. She'd mm. become such a beloved figure in Nepal that a team of men risked their lives to go up and retrieve her body so they could give her a proper burial, which mm. is um, very, very important in the Buddhist culture. You have mm. to, Sherpas believe that if the body isn't buried, that the soul will continue to wander. Mm. So they gave her a proper burial and she never lived to tell her story and it's such an amazing story mm. about no matter who you are where you come from you know what socioeconomic class you come from whatever your background when you have a dream and someone tells you you can't do it you fight for it you mm-hmm. fight for it so she's considered the rosa parks of nepal wow. and i just feel like her story should be told so we're working on that film right now that's awesome that's awesome and that's what i love is that you've always taken the opportunity to make it about more than just you. You know, there's a lot of sports figures where it's a solitary sport to some degree and it all becomes self-consuming. And you've made this all about everybody else, whether it was your team, whether it was about your country, whether it's about women, Sherpers, whether breaking barriers, all kinds of stuff. Just really cool process. I'm going to hit you with some rapid-fire questions here because I have some fun stuff I love to do and our listeners kind of get used to it. And the wrinkles of it tell us a little different story for each person. So what's the single best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Go down swinging. All right. Who gave you that? My dad. Come on, Former dad. Former FBI agent who was the first special agent to publicly speak out against J. Edgar Hoover wow. back in the 60s and try to get Hoover and the Bureau investigated. He was railroaded out of the Bureau. He was labeled a threat to national security. Hoover blocked him from every job he tried to get. And then after Hoover died... Then he was investigated, and they figured out that everything my dad was claiming was correct and wow. was true. And then my dad ended up on Time Magazine and wow. you know in all these different books. And so he was later vindicated. But you know he had a rough go of it. But he did not slow down. Like he wasn't even afraid of J. Edgar Hoover. I thought wow. if he's you know some young agent in their mid twenties isn't afraid of Hoover, like, come on, you know don't be afraid of anything. Right. So go down swinging. Go down swinging. Well, words to live by. Okay. What one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? ESP. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Only because I feel like sometimes it's so hard to tell when people are struggling or people are sad or people are lonely because social media, everybody puts on a happy face. And I just feel like if I had ESP, I could tell when someone was struggling or sad or lonely and I would want to just go up and give them the biggest hug. And I would just walk around hugging everybody I knew that had, you know, was having a difficult time. Sometimes when someone's really down, if they just know that somebody cares, it can make the biggest difference, not only in their day, mm-hmm. but in their life. So mm-hmm. just knowing that somebody cares. So I just, that's what I would want to do. That's cool. That's cool. All right. What book has been most instrumental in your life? So it's funny because I think I got it when I was seven or eight years old, but Free to Be You and Me, <laughs> Marlo Thomas. Oh, Marlo. Because that was the book that just said, You be you. You be you. No matter who you are, you're awesome. And it doesn't matter if you look different or you act differently or whatever's different about you from the people around you, you be you. And that's all you need to do. Now, did you grow up in a home where there was positive motivation and a lot of that type of deal? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. That's cool. And so mom and dad were cheerleaders. Yeah, for sure. That doesn't hurt. 
That doesn't hurt. Okay, give me your favorite song, music. Like you've got a long drive and you got twenty minutes, and you're just you're in need of a little okay, something. I'm a big country music fan. Come on, but my two favorite songs: God Bless the USA. Come on. Lee Greenwood, the original, and then Leonard Cohen, Hallelujah. Oh, I wow. love that song. Oh, I yeah. I love that song. Those are... I know a lot of people like the Jeff Buckley version better, but I yeah. still like the original Leonard yeah, Cohen. Yeah, Leonard Cohen. There's just something fabulous about a guy that sounds like he swallows sandpaper for breakfast every morning. <laughs> smoked 500 cigarettes. <coughs> exactly. Sang. Oh, there's just... Uh, you know, when Frank Sinatra sang My Way, you knew the guy had lived a lot of life. <laughs> yeah. Right? So when Leonard Cohen sings Hallelujah... It sounds like he's lived a lot of life. It's good stuff. Okay, what movie do you watch over and over and over and over again? Okay, besides home movies of my dog, which I watch <laughs> over and oh, over and over. Oh, my God. Over. First thing she showed me today is the dog. He's part pony, by the way. He, a, yeah, he's a 105-pound black lab named Trooper. And he we don't have kids, so he's just our pride and joy. And he's very, <laughs> very spoiled. But I watch movies of him all the time. But I also watch the movie Love Actually because it's just a feel-good mm-hmm. movie about love. And, you know, look, some people believe there's only two true emotions in the world, fear and love, right? And so you got to go. You go toward right. love. And I'm a big believer that perfect love casts out fear. Yes. So yes. it's a good thing. You know, we live in some strange times. Yes. Uh, we live in... <laughs> Stranger live, now than ever, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, you've been a part of the political process. You turned a, an introduction. Actually, I love the story of how you were introducing Arnold Schwarzenegger at a Goldman Sachs-sponsored yes. event, I believe, when you were yes. working at Goldman. And then... Uh, he said, who's this kid? And next thing you end up in a job and you're A deputy as- finance director for the Schwarzenegger campaign. Right. Yeah, so that was one of those situations where I always tell people, every time you have any kind of opportunity, treat it as if it's going to be your one big break. Mm. And I had been at a fundraiser that Arnold Schwarzenegger was hosting. It was before he was running for governor. He had co-authored a state ballot initiative called Prop 49, which was for funding for after-school programs for kids. And I was at a fundraiser for Prop 49, and I ended up meeting some of his staff that were working on Prop 49. It was in Los Angeles, actually, and I mentioned that I lived in San Francisco, and they said, well, I think Arnold's going to be coming up there. If he does, we'll get in touch. So they got in touch and they said, Arnold's going to be in the Bay Area. You know, we know you work at Goldman Sachs. He said he's got a couple of hours to kill. Could he come by Goldman? And I said, well, let me check this out. And I checked with the management and, and they said, sure, we could get some of our senior people, you know, managing directors and partners to meet with him in a conference room. And I remembered when his, the staffer had said, he, he's coming to San Francisco. He's got a couple of hours to kill. So I was trying to think of a really creative introduction because they told me that I could be at the meeting and I should introduce him. So I thought, what happens when Arnold Schwarzenegger has a couple of hours to kill? And I went through all of his movies, which were a couple of hours, and I memorized how many people he killed in each of his movies. And so I introduced him and I actually said, what happens when Arnold Schwarzenegger has a couple of hours to kill? And then I rattled off all the names of his movies and how many people he killed in each one. And they said that was the most creative introduction they'd ever heard. And they said, you know, you're really creative. You know, if he ever runs for governor, you should come work with us. And so that's how I ended up going from Goldman. Look, I was a very junior person at Goldman. I was a junior associate. So they weren't going to miss me. But you took the opportunity to take 
take it like it was, hey, this might be my big break, even yeah, if it's not. Also, I just wanted to make it mine. You know, I'm yeah. a creative person. I yeah. like humor. I like doing things that are a little bit different. So I right. wasn't going to stand up and say, I'd like to introduce Arnold Schwarzenegger, right. a real estate investor and movie star, yeah. bodybuilder. You know, everybody knows that about Arnold. Yeah. I wanted to give people something they didn't know. Right. I just like to be creative. So I just wanted to make the introduction mine, and, and it ended up getting me a job. So well, it goes so, back to free to be you and me. Just yeah, be you. I love that. So you've been in the political process, and, and for those of us who've been around it, when you see sausage being made, you lose your appetite for it a lot of times. Oh, yeah. So we live in these crazy times right now where if a statement comes out, 60 million people go sideways. If a different statement comes out, a different 60 million people go sideways. It's sideways over there. People are reading headlines that are not attached to content. Sometimes people producing the content are not researching the content. Social media. And it's like everybody's on the drama program. And I'm watching people. I'm having a hard time. I have to kind of grab audiences by the scruff of the neck right now. Say, shut off your phone, sit down, and for the next couple hours, here's what we're going to do. What's your advice to people right now? Because we had people, we're going to an event here recently. Uh, we've got thousands of people coming to the San Diego Convention Center. And some of my folks were calling, you know, people saying, hey, come on down. We'd love to have you. And they're like, oh, I don't even know if the business is going to be around in six months. <laughs> and they're putting their life on hold. They're putting their goals on hold. They're caught up in all these other people's drama. You know, when you go climb Mount Everest, you're disconnected from the world and you're focused right. on your goal. I would just encourage you, and I know we weren't going to talk about this, but I would love your encouragement for an audience that's hyper-distracted. The political process that you've seen it from the inside out, I certainly haven't. You know what goes on. You know the good and the bad of it. Right. And Both the ugly. sides of it. Yeah. Uh, what's your advice to people? To, you know, focus on their family. Focus on their dreams. Focus on their life. Focus on their business. Focus on what they can contribute to their country as opposed to everything's gone to hell in the handbasket or everything's now the savior of the world. Right. Well, I would go back to some advice that I learned climbing mountains, which is that you cannot control the environment. Mm. All you can do is control the way you react to it, mm -hmm. right? So you're always going to have crazy stuff going on. And I think what's disappointing now, as you mentioned, is that headlines are crazy. You know, even news organizations that have been reliable in the past mm -hmm. are putting out headlines that aren't necessarily factual or true. Mm -hmm. Nobody's doing their research. Nobody's doing their homework. I would tell people, don't rely on somebody else to do the homework and do the research and do it yourself, right? Just like when you show up for a climb, mm -hmm. you can't rely on somebody else to get you up the mountain. You're going to get yourself up the mountain and get yourself back down alive. Don't expect that somebody else is going to carry you or do that for you. So it is harder. It's more labor intensive because now we have to do our own research when it comes right. to the headlines, when it comes to news, when it comes to politics. So right. that's number one. The other piece of advice I would give people is that the one thing you know about storms, and so I say storm for the mountain, I say storm maybe politically, or, you know, what's going storm on. Storm in life. Storm in life. You know, what's going on in your industry when you feel like you are in the middle of a storm. Remember, storms are temporary. Mm. Every storm is temporary. There is no such thing as a storm that lasts forever. So when you feel like you're in the middle of a storm, mm. just keep your bearings, mm -hmm. right? And realize that at some point, clouds are going to go away. Everything's going to look a whole lot better. But you are you. You create your own happiness. And if you are letting your happiness be dictated by whoever's in the Oval Office or whoever's in whatever Senate seat, you know, 
look, you got to change that yourself. Mm-hmm. You got a life to live. You got people around you that you love and that love you. Mm-hmm. Think about what you got to do for those people every day and stop feeling like whoever's running the country is running your life because they're not. I love it. Words to live by. That is Allison Levine, and I approve that message. That's all I got to say. <laughs> well, Allison, I love you. You're the bomb. I love you, too. Thank you for having me. It's been a cool time. So enjoy our relationship. So excited to get you exposed to more people. You have a great message. You're an inspirational character by just being you. Well, thank you. And just being you is good enough to be great, as my mom used to say. Well, thanks for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the show. I think it's worth listening to a few times. There were some great one-liners there today. I love hearing your feedback, so please leave us some reviews. And remember, there's no sponsors on this show. We're not selling anything on this show. All we ask is one thing, is that if you know someone who can use some encouragement, some inspiration, some mindset, motivation, and methodology to become more successful in their life, share the show with them. That's all we ask. So as I finish here today, I leave you with a little Irish blessing that my grandfather, who never climbed a hill more than 200 feet, used to say. (laughs) May the roads rise up to meet you. May the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sunshine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. We'll see you next time.